Let's pray. Lord God, we give tonight to you. It is a night that you have made. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. Lord, you made a contrast between the dark and the light. And Lord, even the night is yours. So we praise you tonight. We worship you tonight. We give to you all that we are, body, mind, and soul, that you might be praised. Help us, Lord, if we aren't there, to get there. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we give our focus and our attention to you. And we'd carry that out with us out of here and into other people's lives. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Raise your hand if, you, if you're a good Christian boy or girl. Yeah. Oh, come on, you all are, right? We're all good Christians, right? And while we're all good Christians, we would never want to admit it, but have you ever used abnormally strong language? Yeah, yeah. We only do it when something really has us put on edge. Something or, or someone has gotten us genuinely angry or upset about something, huh? As Christian men and women, we don't normally call people dirty names or, or use filthy language, do we? That's not very Christian, is it? So if Paul the Apostle, man of God extraordinaire, humble teacher of the things of God, preacher of the gospel message, if we find Paul using extraordinarily strong language in a passage, language that he doesn't normally use, language that is harsh, maybe even hard to listen to if we look at it full on for what it says, we really should pay attention, shouldn't we? There is something important to Paul. So what is it that has Paul so riled up in our passage tonight? Now here we are in the middle of a book called Philippians, right? Sorry for those of you who were expecting Pastor Paul tonight. You got me instead. So we're back to Philippians. We're in the middle of a book where Paul is over and over, encouraging the Philippians to rejoice, to, to live in a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Live in a way that they can see Christ in you. Rejoice, right? Chapter 3, if you want to flip over to Philippians already. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. That's what we went through the last time we were together in this book. So what is so wrong that Paul's tone would take a complete turn? Well, having just passed the 501st anniversary of the Reformation, I'll go ahead and use some Latin on you. Sola fide. Sola gratia. And solus Christus. Salvation comes from faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Don't add anything to it, and don't forget it. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 2. Go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. Paul says to us, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision 
who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Paul begins... This section of the letter with a, an intense warning sign. Here we find three times over the same imperative. And it's translated rather sweetly for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And, and it's put there in, in the imperative tense, right? We, we've got, beware for the dogs. Beware for the evildoers. Beware for the mutilators of the flesh. You've got to be aware of what's going on. It's, it's a flashing neon sign if Paul had access to neon. It's written in red. Beware. Well, beware of who or what? Beware of the dogs. According to Jewish culture, particularly at the time, dogs were worthless creatures of the street. They're animals who return to their own vomit. They eat it, and they like it. They feed on dead things, even, given the opportunity, human flesh and blood. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament tells us that the Jews considered dogs to be the most despicable, insolent, and miserable of all creatures. And so the Jews would use this term for Gentiles, an insult, a filthy insult, a derogatory term for anyone outside of God's chosen race, his chosen people. Paul has taken a, a gross insult here and is using it. Beware of the evildoers, those who would walk in contradiction to the law of God. Again, Jews would use this word. They would speak in this way of Gentiles, as Gentile culture was constantly disregarding the law of God with idolatry, 
eating unclean foods, sexual misconduct under the guise of the worship of their false gods, on and on and on. The the Gentile culture was a constant uh, assault upon the law of God. So the Jews would call them dogs, evildoers. Beware of those mutilators of the flesh as the Gentiles would cut themselves in the worship. They'd mutilate their bodies in the false worship of their false gods. We see that in 1 Kings chapter 18, 28, when the prophets of Baal, they were cutting themselves, right? As they worshipped Baal, trying to get a response from him. So Paul begins this part of our passage with three derogatory insults. Three derogatory terms as a warning sign. You must, imperative, right? You must stay away from the false teaching of these people. Beware. You must beware. But he wasn't talking about Gentiles. He takes these harsh terms and he turns them around onto anyone who would demand rites, rituals, or or any kind of human works, even those works according to the law of Moses, in order to achieve salvation. He calls those who would try to insert works into their salvation dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. He he turns these insults around onto those that we would call Judaizers. Those who are telling people that if you want to be saved, if you want to really have salvation, then, then you must be circumcised. Mutilators of the flesh. If you want salvation, it requires some form of human action. There's something you have to do. Faith plus works. Grace plus traditions. Paul turns these insults upon those Jews who would disregard the purity and righteousness of a salvation that comes from Christ alone. Through faith and grace alone. Those who would instead return to the vomit, which is a very biblical word as we'll see later, the vomit of a works-based righteousness. They are dogs. They have become evildoers as they contradict the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the law of Moses and calls us to live according to the law of love, grace, and mercy. And in physical circumcision, these are the people who have become the mutilators of the flesh. Like the prophets of Baal from 1 Kings, trying to attract their God's attention by mutilating their own flesh, cutting themselves, bleeding. The 1 Kings passage says they were gushing blood. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, those who would add works to your salvation. Verse 3, For we 
are the circumcision, who worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For we, the believers in Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Jesus alone by grace through faith for their salvation, those who put no confidence in the flesh or their own works are the real circumcision. Because a true circumcision is not a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. Not one of, of the physical body, but Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision means nothing apart from a circumcision of the heart. Why can't we trust in our flesh? Why can't we trust in our own works to make us right before God? God tells us over and over again. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's quite a description, isn't it? None. No. No one. Not one. No one. All. No one. Not even one. Don't even think about it. Oh, no. Right? But let's not stop there. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a concept that's difficult for us to accept. And so God had to put it over and again throughout Scripture that we would begin to understand that there is nothing good in us apart from the grace of God. Sin has taken residence in all of us because of the sin of our forefather Adam. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And because of that, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We cannot please God in our flesh. Isaiah 64. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All of our righteous deeds are like the clothes that Joshua the high priest wore when he stood before God in the throne room of God. Zechariah chapter 3, it's described to us. And it, the, the author, Zechariah, he says that Joshua was covered in filth, his garments filthy. And that word that is used for the filth on Joshua's clothes is that of feces and vomit. That's how Joshua stood before God. Because that's what our works are like when they're seen next to God's holy perfection. Throughout Scripture, God warns us that there is nothing we can do to achieve our own righteousness before Him. He's made it abundantly clear in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that everything we do is in some way tainted by the sin in our flesh. That we all eventually will lean toward doing that which is right in our own eyes, just like Israel did back in the book of Judges and, and throughout the Old Testament. Apart from God's intervention, we are helpless and without hope. Do you remember Isaiah when, when he stood before God in his throne room? Go ahead and flip over into Isaiah chapter 6. Apart from God's intervention, we are helpless and without hope. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Looking forward to the day of Christ Jesus. The intervention of God is what allowed Isaiah to stand before him in his throne room. Zechariah, 
shortly before the New Testament. Flip over to Zechariah chapter 3. Apart from God's intervention, helpless and without hope. Zechariah 3, again, we have the throne room of God. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Please understand that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate Christ. That is the Christ before he has taken on flesh. And, and here we have Jesus taking away the sins of Joshua. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isn't that amazing? They needed God's intervention, didn't they? A prophet of God, Isaiah, who wrote a significant book, a great book, right, in the Old Testament. God's high priest, Joshua, stood before God in his throne room, and he needed God's intervention. They could not stand before God, as important as they were, without his intervention. To drive this point home, Paul uses himself as an example back in Philippians, starting at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. You think Paul had any say over that? No, but it was the perfect day, according to the law, to be circumcised before the Lord. Now, how could his audience, how could these people as Gentiles ever achieve that? Isn't it too late for them? They could never be as righteous as Paul. And that's just point one. Paul is ethnically pure. He says he's an Israelite. He's of God's chosen people. Could his audience, could these Gentiles crawl back into their mother's wombs and be born an Israelite? Isn't it too late for them? He's not only an Israelite, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He can trace his genealogy all the way directly back to a specific tribe, and not just any tribe, but the tribe that produced the first king of Israel. What a matter of pride, isn't it? A Hebrew of Hebrews. He could speak Hebrew. He lived a Jewish, culturally Jewish life. Not only that, he was a Pharisee. He wasn't your average Israelite. 
These men were respected and revered for their knowledge of and dedication to the law of God. And their adherence not only to the written law, but to the oral traditions of the elders. They set themselves apart from everybody else by strictly adhering to all of these things. Laws over laws over laws so that you would never break the first law in the first place. Paul was zealous for Israel and the law of Moses to the point of persecution of the church. And in accord with the law, he says, he was blameless. Under the law, he was blameless from the day he was born to then. How could these people even compare? How could we compare to any of that? Even the first step of it. If, if they were going to dare to attempt to get into God's presence based on works, where would they begin? How could they do it in their flesh after all God has said to us about our works and our flesh and our filthiness before him? But Paul says, starting in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says to them, it's like he has a tally sheet, a financial tally sheet in front of him, and he's looking at all the good things about his life and his, his blamelessness before God, and he looks at that compared to cross, Christ, to, to the cross of Christ, and says, no, that's a loss. No, that's, that's filth. No, that's, that's a loss. He's counting his tally sheet and saying, none of these things have any value compared to Jesus Christ. He tells them that anything he could have gained from his righteousness, according to the law, was rubbish. And here we run into Paul using strong language yet again. Scubalon, compared to the righteousness that he receives from Jesus Christ. It just doesn't compare. I'm sure many of you have, have heard this from this passage before, if you've heard it preached before, but if you've, how many people here have ever had a dog? Yeah? Maybe you've had this experience. You're walking in the backyard on a nice summer day, and you have your shoes off, and all of a sudden you step in something squishy. And it's warm, and it goes right between your toes, and you go, oh. You just stepped in scuba lawn. A big pile of what has been nicely translated for you here as Rubbish. Rubbish is not the word that came out of Paul's mouth. It's really far worse than what I even described. The, the, the word here uh, being used to refer to human excrement. And there's something just far more filthy about that, isn't there? And that is just how valueless a work's righteousness is compared to knowing Christ. As Paul continues that Old Testament picture of our works before God, that, that filth that it is, he, even Paul in all of his earthly righteousness, just like Isaiah 
Just like Joshua the high priest, he needed the intervention of Christ Jesus. How can a righteousness of our own in our fallen flesh, with all of our fallen works, how can it begin to compare to a righteousness from our perfect Savior, from our perfect Lord, who has not even the least amount of sin in himself? Sinless. How can our self-imposed righteousness even begin to compare with a righteousness in which there can be found no fault? One with eternal and infinite value as it was eternal, infinite God who went to the cross in our place, right? One who could taste death for everyone for all time? Sins past, present, and future forgiven? One that comes with a resurrection, resurrection hope and promise. How could I ever think to achieve that for myself? I don't know about you, but I can't resurrect myself. Only Jesus could lay down his life of his own volition and take it back again of his own volition. Why would I even begin to depend on myself for everlasting life? Surely it is better to be, as Paul was in verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So how does this apply to us today? Well, first of all, have you accepted, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone by grace through faith for your salvation before a perfect and holy God? for the forgiveness of your sins. Do you understand the bad news that you are dead in your sin apart from Christ? To be forever separated from the God who created you. Because God won't live with sin. Do you understand that God so deeply loves you that he sent his only son to pay the punishment for your sin in your place? That you wouldn't have to pay that any longer so that you could be with him forever. All we need to do is accept that free gift of salvation. And when we do, we are then dressed in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not our own, before a perfect and holy God dressed no longer in our filth, but in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ do you understand yet that it makes no sense to depend on your own supposedly good works to be able to stand before a perfect and holy God on the day of judgment? And that day is coming. This, this is what has Paul so fit to be tied here. How can our works compare to the perfection of Christ? Uh, why would God send his son to die in our place for our sins? Uh, such a horrific death, even a death on a cross, if there was any other way. If we could possibly pay for our sin with a worldly righteousness, why would he do it? It makes no sense. 
We needed Christ. Israel was an evidence to us throughout the Old Testament that it doesn't work and that we are all a stubborn and stiff-necked people just as they were. That we all need the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, are we in any way in danger of becoming our own version of Judaizers? Are we in any way in danger of adding some kind of works or traditions to our faith in Christ that somehow make us more righteous or or more holy, that somehow perfects our faith apart from Christ? Or maybe those things that we add to our faith make others less righteous when they don't do them or they don't worship the way we think they ought. Is it how we dress for church? Is it our our pious way of life and how often we go to church? Is it the music we worship with? And that goes every direction. Please don't think that the contemporary worship is any less than our beautiful traditional hymns. And please don't think the contemporary worship is any greater than than those old hymns that remind us of great truths of who God is. Those don't get us salvation. That isn't what Paul was arguing about here. That is not what got him so worked up. Doesn't even enter into it. We need to constantly check ourselves that we don't impress any kind of works, righteousness, or actions upon others or or somehow imply to them that that they should do it too if they want to be real Christians. These may be good things to do. Attending church regularly is a very good thing to do in my opinion, right? I think biblically as well. Do not forsake the gathering together of the saints, right? but they should never be associated with the quality or quantity of someone's salvation. Those things come from the perfect Son of God, and if you have a problem with somebody's salvation because they don't do things exactly the way you do, take it up with their Savior. Good luck with that. Real Christians, the true circumcision, worship God by the Spirit of God. Our entire lives become an act of worship. It's not just how we sing, but it includes how we sing. It's not about how we give, but it includes how we give, how we apply God's word, how we get up in the morning, how we brush our teeth. I want to make sure I have good breath so that I can go to somebody and talk to them about about the gospel, and they will hear the words coming out of my mouth instead of going, wow, that man needs a breath mint. At least drink a cup of coffee so you have coffee breath. Everybody loves coffee breath, right? Everything we do, guided, not by tradition or religious effort to earn our own righteousness before God, but instead guided by the God-breathed Word of God in accord with the saving grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We now live for Him in everything we are. And, and we should become so angry with ourselves. If, just as Paul was, if we see ourselves or our church family walking in any other way or relying on some kind of other means of salvation other than 
Christ alone, by faith alone, grace alone. Let's find our righteousness in Christ alone. Not by works that no one may boast. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your word given to us that, that is so very forward. You don't want us to make a mistake. You don't want us to, to, to see you incorrectly or understand our salvation in any other way than what you intended it to be in your son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice. No one comes to the Father but through him. You want it to be oh so very clear to us, and we praise you for doing so in your word. And we pray, Lord, for those we would talk to, that you would give us the strength and the words and the wisdom to impart that to them. And Lord, to keep a watchful eye upon ourselves, that we would not add anything, no amount of traditions or any other circumstantial things to our faith, but Christ alone. Lord God, we give to you our church We praise you for your love shown to us at the cross and your righteousness in the same place. We praise you in his name. Amen.